Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Hello again. Welcome to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. It's Jason Carapesi alongside Paul Gillieri, as usual. And uh, we've got a nice little show for you today. Um, before we get to all that good stuff, we've got to remind you of the housekeeping particulars. Uh, we are, of course, on Twitter and Instagram, State of Love and Trust underscore pod. And uh, go on your usual podcasting service be it apple or spotify or whatever and please subscribe and then unsubscribe and subscribe again because apparently that really helps numbers who knows why so anyways now that you've done that and maybe leave a review if you want you know paul tends to be good i have my moments so you know write something nice you know tis the i think season. you're beautiful jason well i'll take it yeah i'll take it all right so today's episode what we're going to do is we are going to talk about um, songs that we originally did not like too much, but now we've come to grow and love. That's going to be the main body of it. Uh, eventually, we'll get to a new what if, and that'll be what if uh, the band had never taken on Ticketmaster. And then later on, we'll get to our lyric and live cut of the week per usual. So to start things off with our songs you used to hate, but not anymore thing, Paul, tell us what we're doing here. So for those of you who recall back in our first episode, I mentioned as part of my uh, little uh, trip down memory lane that in my discovery of the band through the album 10, the track Black, their fifth track on the album, was a a track that I almost never let play all the way through because I was a young, dumb teenager at the time. You needed energy. You needed I needed energy. I needed testosterone. Like if it didn't get me going, you know, I was like, skip, skip, ballad, skip. Yes. And then, um, then Paul found love and decided it was time to hear oh. the slow, slow jams, but, <laughs> or what we think at that age is love. Right. But, um, you know, uh, looking back at it now, I had made a comment during our first episode that it was a song that I initially at first didn't like, mostly because I, I never gave it a chance. And it, it has now become my favorite Pearl Jam track ever. And it kind of gave me the idea, you know, they've got a lot of songs, right? A lot of albums at this point, pretty vast catalog. And how many songs have we heard that maybe upon first listen or even multiple listens, even years of listening, we maybe said, you know what? I'm not really fond of that song. But as the band ages, we age with them. And sometimes their songs grow on you. You know what I mean? As you mature and you become a different person, the songs that maybe you didn't appreciate, understand or connect to at one point, time in your life suddenly become far more relevant and poignant at a later date. Uh, and that I think has happened to me on multiple occasions. And so kind of gave me the idea that, yeah, you and I should talk a little bit about some of these songs, Jason. Let's do that. We, we should, we should. So I'm, I'm actually going to pass the ball to you because okay. you said something to me the other day. You said, you know what? You, you hadn't really put too much thought into this. So you had to do kind of, you mentioned going, through their catalog and say, yeah, you know, let me see. And I got a text from you and you said, you've got a couple that are going to surprise me. So I think so. I have to begin. With okay. You. All right. In fact, looking at all three of these, I think definitely two will surprise you. Cannot wait. All right. So these are no particular order for me. They're just three songs that, you know, I was not too fond of in the beginning. And now I, I really do enjoy. Uh, the first song I'm going to go with is Long Road. Okay. 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 So Long Road, um, I don't remember the first time I heard it um, or that uh, that I knew it was a song because, you know, it was on Mirrorball. Right. Um, or Merkinball? Merkinball, yeah. Sorry. Company. Uh, Mirrorball. Mirrorball Sessions, but Merkinball mm-hmm. was the single that came out of that with uh, I Got Id and Long Road, one and two, respectively. So I didn't know when it was released that it was a thing. It probably wasn't until the Touring Band 2000 DVD that I, that I knew that it was a song. Oh, wow. And when I heard, it's the first song on that DVD. And I was like, what is this? And why is it so monotonous? Why, what, what's this droning effect for five minutes with hardly any chord changes? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> like, what's this thing even about anyway? 
you know, ah, to be young, right? Yeah. I think I was probably 18 at the time, and, and I just didn't, it didn't really speak to me. So it wasn't until, you know, many years and lessons later, mostly the live versions, did I not realize that the, you know, the droning effect and that few chord changes symbolizes, duh, the long road. Okay. Life ends at some point. We don't know, you know, what happens after that. We all kind of walk that long road and we find out what's at the end of it, if anything, um, if the road ever ends at all. And everyone is on this same kind of journey. And sometimes people we love walk beyond the horizon of that road. And we are left to feel shitty and sad. And, you know, this is a really beautiful and powerful eulogy of sorts. And it's, it's so much more powerful live to me than the recorded version. And it probably goes back to that in thinking to the first time I heard it, which was the touring band DVD from 2000. I can't remember the, the, the location. I want to say Albuquerque, but I can't be certain. Someone will correct me in the comments. Um, I've, <laughs> I've seen the song six times, okay? Uh, but the one that sticks out to me the most is San Diego 2006. And for all the super fans out there, you've probably read somewhere why this song or this show is important. They actually didn't play it as an opener, which they usually do. They played it as the first encore opener. And it sticks out because I learned what the song was about. He went on this like, Ed went on this five minute um, story about how he had a teacher, a drama teacher in his high school, Clayton Liggett, who um, was very influential to him. And he told, told the story about how the song came to be. And that was in the studio for Mirrorball. And he got a phone call saying that his teacher, Clayton Liggett, had died. And so this guy was so influential, he just went into the studio, started hitting hitting a D chord over and over, quote unquote, ringing the bell, as he said it, as he put it. Mm. And the band slowly came in one at a time and just kind of followed his lead and, and out came Long Road. Now, I don't have too many people close to me that have died, but I, I've witnessed loved ones whose um, close ones have died mm-hmm. um, you know my, my parents have had uncles and grandparents and parents and um, the like pass away and so I've kind of felt that by proximity and man it's if something if somebody really affects your life in a positive way and and they pass on and we don't know where they go that that is that's a long road to think about and uh, so I didn't appreciate it then but I appreciate it now a lot yeah, it's great. It's interesting too that you know he's playing the D chord. Mm-hmm. Not a, it's not an E minor for for those yeah, listening it, who it are like really musically inclined. It, it's, it's not a, a sad chord. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a, it's an interesting choice. Literally a three chord song, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it summarizes a lot of music in the early nineties. I think. First, oh, of course. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah. I, it, power chords to boot. Yeah. <laughs> in any case, no, that, right. that's a cool cool background story on that man. So it went from. No dice to suddenly, wow, there's something really profound happening. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. What do you got? Okay, so for me, when I think about the band's catalog, uh, the first two albums, just it did they didn't have a bad song on there for me. I mean, there were songs that I was like, eh, you know, I, they're not songs that I, I necessarily go out of my way to hear, but I would let both those albums play all the way through. Uh, Vitology was a bit trickier for me, uh, mostly because it was what I would say a bit more of an experimental album. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the songs on there are songs that uh, that I I didn't like then, and, and I still don't. Um, we'll have an episode on those kinds of shows. On those kinds yeah, of- <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I would imagine there's a song on there that involves a mop that probably... Everybody feels the same way. <laughs> uh, although I will admit that there are times where I, I do actually listen to that all the way through, just as part part of the listening experience, if mm-hmm. you will. But no, that's not one for me. Uh, the first one for me actually comes off the very next album, uh, which is No Code, and that song is Around the Bend. I almost picked that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorite Pearl Jam tracks. I adore that song. And when I first heard it, I couldn't stand it. I was like, what is this? Yeah, I'm with <laughs> what you. Is this? Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, you're listening to it and you're thinking, I, I thought I bought a rock album, you know? I bought a rock record. What is this crap at the end of it? And it's so unfortunate because I was young and stupid, you know? <laughs> but uh, I look back now 
at my feelings and I compare that to today. I mean, now I, I have children, you know, I have two kids and I know what it's like to hold my baby or babies, I should say, and put them to bed. And this particular track was was written for Jack Irons' kid. Now, Jack Irons was older. I don't want to say considerably older. I forget how many years older he is then. Maybe half a decade or so? Yeah, something like that. He was an yeah. old, old Chili Peppers drummer. And so when uh, they fired Dave, they needed a drummer, and Jack was just this, this perfect guy to bring in. But, you know, Irons was, he was a family man at this point in time. He kind of was transitioning himself out of playing live living and trying to spend more time with his kid and it's funny because if you if you look at the history of the recording of this particular album um and i'm just pulling this from some of the notes from from brendan o'brien and stuff like that that i've i've read and he says that when I, i should say mike actually says that when when irons got brought on that the band was really at, at odds with each other. You know, I mean, Brendan O'Brien mentioned that this was the album that almost tore them apart. I mean, they were trying to, re- if, I, if I recall, they were they were basically making this. It was like on the fly that they were making this while they were uh, kind of coming apart at the same time, you know, and they were playing shows. So they were kind of like on the road, but then going into the studio at the same time, which in the road, by the way, them. is the, is the shambolic 1995 tour, which we will, I'm foreshadowing a little bit here, but, for the next segment but yeah exactly right so i mean it was a tumultuous time in the band's career and so jack according to mike was this kind of big spiritual influence uh, that's you know eddie vetter said that this album no code was all about gaining perspective and it was you know, brendan o'brien says it was it was a transitional record for them and essentially that this is that this was kind of like the trial of fire if you will for the band and what we have enjoyed all these years since is because of these experiences the band went through during this recording session and so around the band for me was fascinating because i could see jack irons basically there and you know brendan o'brien said everybody i'm quoting o'brien here he said everybody was on their best musical behavior around him it was almost like Hmm. he was this elder statesman that they all respected and last thing they wanted to do was was violate the um the trust that, that 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 he had given them and dishonor the fact that he was taking time out of his family to come record and, and be with them and so i could see a conversation happening when he mentions missing his kids and eddie feeling so indebted to the man that he he and inspired by that modeling that he wanted to write this song and so there's a, a beautiful lullaby happening in this track it's very soothing. It has kind of like a interesting, like like Mike's guitar. There's like an interesting country jangle to mm-hmm. it, you know. Yeah. And it has a beautiful, perfect rhythm. But the lyrics are extremely bittersweet. I mean, if you listen to, like, I'll just read you this verse here: "All the evenings close like this. All these moments that I've missed. Please forgive me, won't you, dear? Please forgive and let me share with you around the bend." And so I can see somebody like Jack Iron saying. I, I wish I was home with my kids sometimes. You know, I've been on the road so many years of my life playing that there's so much I've missed. And when I have these moments with them, I just cherish them, you know. And they are, they're precious moments. For anybody listening who has kids, I, I can't imagine you wouldn't feel the same way. So this song has a very personal sentiment to me that I, I felt a connection to it the older and older I got. And once I had children, it just solidified the love that I have for this particular track. It's a beautiful ballad and it's an underrated song. It's one, quite frankly, that I wish they, they play a lot more. I feel like they, they, they put it on uh, Ben Royal Hall and uh, mm. you, you almost never hear it after that. And that was like an 03. So. Yeah, the, it's, it's very few and far between, but it, it feels like it's one of those songs that could sit well in one of those first encore, softer sections that they tend to put into the first encore. Be, I'd love other, to hear it. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've heard it. Uh, I can always I check have. out my PJ stat tracker. I have to be sure. You could. You yeah. could. All right. Um, my next song is going to be amongst the waves. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for a while it bored me musically. Um, I, I felt like it never got out of second gear. And I think like long road, hearing it live in person helped like like most songs Mm. really that i'm on the edge about the key for me pun intended is boom the key the keys and the organ 
by Boom, I think really kind of bring it up a level. And I was particularly listening to my right headphone the other day when I was listening to all these songs, trying to figure out well, which ones really kind of speak to me now. And in the right headphone, I could really hear Boom playing. And it kind of brought everything else um, to the next level. You know, the guitar writing by Stone, it allows Boom to kind of shine in the gaps that Stone leaves. And this is very reminiscent of the song Black, where, again, Stone has written the music, but he's done it in a way where it allows Mike to kind of chime in the guitar fills opposite of Eddie's lyrics. And then and also in the second verse and beyond, it allows the... Um, the keyboard and the piano to kind of fill in the gaps as it were. So that I kind of thought of that as well. Now this song has an excellent crescendo at the end. And I really enjoy the interplay of Mike's solo and Ed's vocals um, towards the very end there. Um, sometimes I fail to really, really listen to lyrics because I'm mm. so into the music, but this story Ed's telling really resonates for me. Now my love story wasn't as desperate as the main characters in this song but the idea of feeling like you're not gonna find love especially after a really horrible relationship gone south is something that i think that everyone can relate to absolutely you know so as can i and so the idea of meeting someone who's got a different perspective a positive outlook that you that you do fall in love with really hits me now because of my marriage you know mm -hmm. so like holy shit the right love can really elevate you from a dark place you didn't know you were in. And so now I feel like I'm riding high amongst the waves, as he says in the song. So, you know, credit to my wife for kind of on the back end of a really horrible relationship, you know, a few months later meeting her and now it's a completely different thing. So this song never really, because at the time it was what, 2006? So I, I was not really in anything at the, at the time. And so it didn't really hit me. But going down underneath the undertow, maybe, sort of, pun, uh, and then coming back up um, through meeting her. So now the, now the song really ascends to me. Yeah, it's great. It, it's funny you say that because that was one of the standout tracks for me when I first heard the album. So it's interesting to you that it felt very, uh, like you said, it just stuck in second gear. At the time, were you in a good relationship? Uh, what was this, 2009? Six, uh, right? Six. No, that's uh, Backspacer. I'm sorry, no. I'm those? sorry, you're right. Yeah. Nine. Oh my lord. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I was in a, yeah, I, I was in a relationship. Uh, you remember who I was in a relationship with? Actually, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I do. <laughs> exactly. So it, Not the it same wasn't. It, it, it was. <laughs> it wasn't a, a bad relationship at all. I, I just it it just wasn't the relationship I was meant to be in. Is all right. And so it. Uh, I'm just yeah, curious if know. that, if if being in one at the time helped you with that song. It's a great question. I I, I don't think I ever thought about it that way. I just I, I thought it was a, musically. I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I mm. like the chorus. It just uh, I, I don't think lyrically necessarily it registered with me as much as as it did musically, which is quite the opposite for you. Where mm -hmm. you know the musically it, it wasn't going anywhere for you, but the lyrics help unlock the song for you. Where it was right. the opposite for me. I didn't. It, it didn't need to be unlocked for me. So. That definitely surprises me. Uh -huh. Aha. Yeah. Did, did Long Road surprise you? No, I think that that song, um, it, it can be hit or miss for folks. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Your second uh, choice here? Uh, okay, so so this one might surprise you. All right. Um, Alive. I, 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 <laughs> no, uh, I think I might be in the minority here, but uh, th this is a song that I didn't like at all when I first heard it. It was an automatic skip. And now I really appreciate it. It's, it's Parachutes off of Avocado. Okay, yep. And it, it's a song that I, I've yet to meet someone that really likes the song, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I can go online and find people that say they like it, but I, sure. I've yet to hear somebody say, oh, I like that song. Um, it's, it's very offbeat. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's awkward in some sense, some senses. To me, it feels like a tribute to the Beatles. It's the most Beatles-esque mm. song in the Pearl yes. Jam yes. catalog. And if you read the lyrics, it kind of feels like a, a dying person's love letter to someone, almost. It's very whimsical, um, but there's nothing like it in the Pearl Jam catalog, similar to Around the Bend. You know? And I think that's what I like about songs like 
this and around the bend uh, songs like sleight of hand that when they go outside the box with music as they do with dance of the clairvoyance i think i'm so intrigued by mm. the ambition and, and adventurous spirit behind that that I, I somehow just open myself up more to that eventually sometimes it just grabs me right away like like dance of the clairvoyance did sometimes do you, think, I'm, on, do you think that makes you more forgiving of a song that may not be as good as it could be just i would say yes and no no because with around the bend and parachutes i immediately it was a turnoff you know i i yeah. listened to those songs and i thought what what is this like why did they put the, how did this make the cut but um eventually you just you listen to an album over and over and over again and this album avocado was almost a concept album like the, the there are protagonist there's a protagonist and and there are characters and there are mm -hmm. stories being told and stone later said that they felt like it, it should have less of a cohesive narrative in the end that they wanted to veer away from it being a, a true concept album but it was heading in that direction initially and so it, what intrigues me about it's a stone gossard song by the way parachutes he, he yeah. wrote the song no surprise so is buckle up which th this song parachutes almost feels like a precursor to that in the sense that it's this dying person's uh, it may not be but i read it as like this dying person's love letters so to speak or, or or last words if you will or thoughts to somebody and that buckle up is about you know, working in the healthcare industry in a hospital and just being surrounded by all that death right. and the responsibility that that comes with but there's like i said it's just a very whimsical track and you just kind of get lost with it you know it just feels like a a, a it's not a jingle, you know, it's not a fan club single from the early 90s or something. It just has a a very dreamscape-like feel to it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not ethereal like you hear on Gigaton. It's more of, um, it's more guitar-based. It just feels like a Beatles song to me. And It's got a hop to it. It does. It does have a hop. Yeah. And, and I, I wasn't into the Beatles in my younger years. Uh, little by little i've become more and more of a fan of theirs and i've come to appreciate what it is they did on both the sound engineering and a, um, a music writing level the older i get and so i think because of that i'm starting to appreciate songs like this in pearl jam's catalog that i think go un underappreciated even unnoticed at times i don't think you're you're, you're rarely going to hear them play the song probably mm -hmm. because look you go onto itunes and you see you know the popularity of a song for a given album this one is going to have the, the the least amount of bars on it of right. any other track on avocado and there's a reason for that you know it, it really is kind of like the oddball the black sheep song on the album but i don't know it just uh i connect with it and uh i like the fact that it's just different and i can go with that fair enough fair enough yeah. i think i've um I have warmed slightly to it over the years as well because it was one of those songs that I did probably skip over half the time, but mm -hmm. I have come to um, enjoy it. I don't know if it's to the level of making a top three because obviously I have not chosen it and I'm giving away my last one here, but um, it's it's I, I definitely look at it better now than I did before and I, and I won't skip it now. All right, my last one, I think you'll appreciate. It's Inside Job. Yes. Many a conversation we've had on this one. Yeah, I probably I probably tipped my hand with uh, you the other night because I sent you a uh, Austin City Limits 2009 rendition of it, which was yeah. tremendous. Um, so again, it comes back to the music first and foremost when I'm listening to these things. And at the time, again, it bored me for a long time. Um, even when the drums kick in for the how I choose to feel part, I was only like kind of mildly in, uh, enthused by that. It's, it's long, so kind of getting past that droney reverse guitar thing um, all the way through the middle. Then you have the, the 12 string and the piano and the bass. So they're kind of building blocks. But at the time, it's like there wasn't enough happening for me to justify that long intro. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that long intro is simply the character contemplating whether or not they really want to address their issues. So they're much needed introspection introspection if i can mm -hmm. uh it takes guts to be vulnerable even to yourself and sometimes admit you need to even have the internal conversation at all and it's now, a mccready song and it's a mccready song so, so which i've come to love mo most of his songs by the way 
As, but as, think about the man's story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it, it makes sense looking back on it now. So, you know, once the character decides to address the issue uh, with the inner monologue, because that's what the song feels like. It feels like an inner monologue, you know, right out of the gate. The honest vulnerability is on the table. Underneath this smile lies everything. All my hopes, anger, pride, and shame. It's like, oh, okay. We are addressing this situation. The only part that repeats in the entire song really is the pre-chorus, I guess you could call it. I will not lose my faith. It's an inside job today. I like that it repeats because it's the character reminding themselves to stay on point, keep at it, and they'll approach fixing their issues. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time in 2000, this is 2006, right? I'm getting my, my songs confused. Yeah. This is avocado. So at the time, I, I did not... I could not figure out how to resonate with that. All these years later, I am now 38, everybody. So I've, I've become a little wiser as the years have gone on, and I'm starting to understand myself a little bit better. So, you know, I never really got it before, but now I think I never wanted to acknowledge my negative thoughts or traits and just kind of ignored them. And you can't really do that. It's not healthy, right? So it's also not very cool to those around you who may experience the collateral damage of you not being good to yourself. Right. You won't be good to them and you may not even realize it. I don't think I did. And I think I'm much more aware now of trying to be a better person, trying to recognize when I'm being a dick to myself as well as others and search inside (laughs) to find out why the hell that's happening in the first place. You know, there's that phrase, be the change you wish to see in the world, right? I think the Obamas actually might have made that a thing. That's basically the end of this song. It's a a Gandhi quote, actually. Is it really? Okay, well, be the change you want to see in the world. Apologies to Mahatma. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Be a human light and shine it. You know, too much darkness right now, especially right now. I've got to do better for everyone around me by being better for myself first. Mm -hmm. So I did not get any of that at the time because maybe I wasn't paying attention to lyrics in general or I was already kind of mentally tuned out because of how long the song took to get to, you know, Ed's lyrics or, you know, Matt's drums or whatever it is. But now, it has a whole new thing going on for me. I totally get it. I'm probably more mentally healthy and and aware of myself and my own shortcomings. And so this kind of is a reminder to have the inner dialogue. And when I watched that the um, the live cut from 09, I was like, damn, this is effing good. It is. And Mike's solo at the end with Ed over the top of it. Whew. It's intense, man. What a banger, man. I'm glad you came around on this one. Thank you. Um, you know, for me, I, I adored this song the second I heard mm. it. It just felt like classic, you know, The Who. You know what I mean? Just this epic. Which I get now. But- yeah. I mean, it just, it, the, the intro alone, I, as soon as I heard it, you know, you hear the, the, that kind of droned out guitar at the beginning, and then you get the keys coming in, and I'm like, oh my God, this is just cinematic. It's epic. And, and in my head, I kept thinking it's going to keep building, and it just did. And I, I absolutely loved it. It has a little uh, bit of a Reno or Me kind of vibe. It does, yeah. Right, I mean, it, that, it has yeah. that, you know, and, and obviously The Who is a big influence with sure. many members of the band. So that song I always, always loved. And I remember when it the album came out, you know, and you and I met shortly thereafter that we had a conversation and I mentioned this song. Like, yeah, that song really doesn't do it for me. I was shocked. I'm like, it's like one of the best songs on the album. Are you kidding? But, uh, I totally understand how, you know, you really do. It's not as easy to do that. If, if you felt like you were in a place where you weren't being honest with yourself, listening to a song about how vital it is to be honest with yourself, maybe even on a subconscious level, you were rejecting the song for that reason. It's quite possible. I, you know? I don't think I was uh, maybe emotionally mature enough to recognize what the hell he was saying. Mm-hmm. You know, that Mike was saying through Eddie in the lyrics, and I just probably just tuned it out or subconsciously didn't want to acknowledge it or understand right. it. And, you know, I'm an older, wiser man now, Paul, so. <laughs> so this last one here... This bounces to me, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's funny you mentioned what Mike was trying to say through Eddie's lyrics. We don't get very often a song where Ed collaborates with one of the other band members on the lyrics. And we saw a little bit more of that on Riot Act. Mm-hmm. This album in particular was the most... It was the hardest album for me to access. Um, it, upon delivery, it was the album I was most disappointed in. 
Um, and, and that's not a, a judgment or a criticism of the band because who the hell am I and, and whether or not the album makes me feel happy, excited, disappointed is irrelevant. I'm just sharing my experience with it because it, it sets up why this particular song is meaningful to me today. But at the time, I had a really hard time accessing this album and it took and continues to take many listens for me to truly embrace the album to the point where I have now, I mean, I can let this thing play all the way through and I really enjoy it now. Um, I'm not one of those fans that, that, you know, that's going to throw out the hot take. Oh, it's Pearl Jam's best album. It's the you greatest know, album. It's way it, better it, than it, 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 It's not. The, <laughs> it's not. Go back to Brooklyn. Thank you. It, it's, it's just, it's not. I'm no sorry. No offense but, to Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn, but Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. But I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's an album that definitely does demand to be reviewed. And it's an album that has a lot of songs on it that I think um, go underappreciated. And this particular song for me, just, it got lost in the shuffle. And I think it does for, for most folks. And, you know, I mentioned that Ed collaborated with other members of the band. Like he collaborated with Matt Cameron lyrically for you are with stone on Bush Leaguer and all or none but he collaborated with Jeff for Ghost. And Ghost is that song for me. Ghost is a song that I really didn't like it at all when I first heard it. I just thought it, there was literally nothing to it. I mean, it was as bland and forgettable and pedestrian of a song as I think I'd ever heard them And I before. think a lot of people still believe that too. It, 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 that very well may be the case, you know? Um, <clears throat> but now it's a song that I look forward to when I put the album on. It's a song that it's one of my favorite tracks on the album. It's not it's not my favorite, but it is one of my favorite tracks on the album now. Uh, I find it incredibly interesting. Yeah. I, I think lyrically it informs the music in ways that are really truly fascinating. I say that because you know if you if you look at the lyrics of a song like this and its commentary on the role of media and media bias and, and how media controls how we interpret what's happening in the world around us mm -hmm. and how that in turn impacts and influences the choices that we make and the paths that we set for ourselves and how we essentially just, we, we become a ghost of ourselves, you know? Um, we we, we kind of lose ourselves in that. And we, we just don't have a real semblance of self because of that. And media has become, I don't want to call it a cancer, but it has become a very, it always has been, but more so now than ever before. It's become a very dangerous entity in society because it's, it's no longer this free enterprise that's sole objective is to provide you with objective truth. It's now become something that's very partisan based that you know, whatever you read, you have to fact check and find out, you know, what is the bias leaning? Does this slant liberal, conservative, you know, Republican, Democrat? You can't even trust anything anymore. Um, and if it's a source of media that you you don't, that represents a line of thinking or a way of thinking that's opposite, that's diametrically opposite of yours, you almost reject anything that's published at, from that source. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As fake news, as it were. So it's, it just becomes a situation where this is a particular song that on an album that was very introspective and existential, like Riot Act was, to kind of have a song that captures the role that media plays in our existential crisis, I thought was, was both novel for the band, um, but, but also incredibly poignant and powerful. And, and necessary and this song just hits every beat for me in that respect uh, musically it crunches I mean it's you know you talk about a song like um, Satan's Bed or, or a song like uh, you know Whipping some of these these hard rockers you know Habit and things like that I feel this is just as good as any of those tracks and it just you just had to get warmed up to it you know what I mean um, I think it's a better track than Save You, to be honest with you. It, it, it's, a, it's a really strong song for me, and it's, it, it gets better and more enjoyable the more that I listen to it. So uh, those of you who haven't listened to it or who don't like the song, uh, I encourage you, Riot Act, go check out Ghost again, read the lyrics, and just kind of think about 
what's being communicated by Ed and Jeff lyrically in the song and how the music seems to, to kind of back up that, that uh, out of body experience, you know, of feeling like a ghost and how you're on a path. that's not even yours anymore. And it's just been written for you and you're being told how to think and how to feel. And, you know, anyway, lyrically it's, it's a, it's a standout. Well, I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but um, I think we'll be talking about this a little bit later in the show. We and um, one thing I, that I do like about uh, this song is, and it's, it's a very superficial thing, but I think it's incredibly interesting, is I want to say it's Mike, I think. Um, his guitar has a uh, tremolo effect on it, which is like that that volume in and out thing. Mm-hmm. And it totally like... That effect w- with these lyrics makes you feel kind of almost like you've got vertigo in a sense, like you're off balance yeah. a little bit. It's like got a that. killer solo at the end of it too. Not to mention the solo. Yeah. But So yeah, I, I am 100% with you. I've actually liked Ghost for a long time. It's never been like an absolute banger for me, but I've always really enjoyed it. And um, I, th- I think your explanation kind of, puts a little bit more context into the lyrics, which I always found to be um, a little hard to understand exactly where he was trying to go with it. Right. But I think you've helped me a little bit kind of find that. Um, so I'm, I'm enjoying, or I should say, I'm uh, very interested to listen to it again and again to kind of get more of that. But cool. we will move on to this week's What If... Now, this week's What If is, uh, what if Pearl Jam never took on Ticketmaster? Let me set things up for you. So if, if you're if you're a little younger and you don't know what that was all about, or you kind of forgot what that was all about, basically in early 94, Pearl Jam kind of set some rules for ticketing with Ticketmaster. They wanted to keep the surcharges super low. And you know the Department of Justice had already been looking into, well, what are these service fees? What's going on here? Are there, are there antitrust laws being um, skirted? And they actually invited uh, Pearl Jam to come to one of their hearings. It's not the opposite way, by the way. People think Pearl Jam kind of approached them, but it was reverse. And so Jeff and Stone did in June of 94 go and testify. Uh, Pearl Jam was forced to play a whole bunch of non-Ticketmaster venues, which is very difficult because in most major cities, Ticketmaster had exclusive contracts with all the big ones. And now this forced uh, Pearl Jam to play in really random places like Casper, Wyoming, Las Cruces, New Mexico, places that that didn't have big venues. They're playing in like soccer fields and stuff like that. So when I said earlier that the 95 tour was a little shambolic, this is why. Mm -hmm. So other bands were very reluctant to kind of join on. It actually reminds me when... Metallica went against Napster and everyone was like, um, we don't want to get involved. It kind of reminds me of that five <laughs> years later. Uh, so being forced out of the major venues was made that tour really shitty. In the end, after the 96 tour, they kind of started playing those venues again. Uh, the band didn't win the antitrust case against Ticketmaster. It was a PR nightmare for them, but they basically had their lobbyists go in and just say, here's a bunch of money, politicians, just rule on our behalf. And so they did over like a July 4th weekend in 95. So it did expose Ticketmaster for all these surcharges, which we are very well aware of today. So it wasn't a total loss, but they didn't win the case uh, at the time. And it, it was struggling. And we mentioned before, you know, trying to go through all that and then having inner band turmoil, trying to write a record at the same time. So that's why 95 and 96 were very odd. So, Paul, what if they hadn't have done all this? You know, man, I uh, I sometimes wonder, when did they fire Dave? That was 90. It was the very end of 94. Yeah. I, I wonder if the band stays together or not. You know, we talked about this in a previous what if where we said, what if the band had never fired Dave? I think the, they were looking for a fight, dude. <laughs> they, Maybe, yeah. They, you know, they just, uh, they it had been building up, you know. I mean, you look at an album like Vitology with a track like Not For You. I mean, they had really worked themselves up into that five against one mentality, you know. And at that point in time, they were just, you know, dogs, pent up and caged backed into a corner and and they were ready to snap. And I think that 
you know, Dave at the time represented all that corporate, you know, hoopla, like rock and roll, let's enjoy this. And they were, they just rejected all that. And so they, they rejected everything about the process, you know, the, the bureau, the bureaucracy of it all, the acquisition of tickets, the surcharges, the whole nine yards. And so when they, when they took on Ticketmaster, it alienated a lot of people. I mean, I think there were a lot of fans that were like, dude, now I got, you know, I haven't seen you since X year. Now I got to drive an hour and 45 minutes outside of my home city to go see you. And I think they were just like, screw this, man. I mean, these guys, they're on their high horse, you know, they got to get off their pedestal. This, what is this self-righteous crap? Get with the program. You know, this is America in the nineties now, whatever, you know? And so in some respects, they were kind of like fighting the good fight that not everybody felt they should, or even needed to fight. Um, I think, they did. I'm, I'm glad that they did. Um, well, I, no one I, knew about service charges. They did. Right. It, it, they kind of pulled the, you know, it's the old Wizard of, of Oz moment where you mm-hmm. kind of pull the curtain back and you find out what's going on behind it. And I don't know if the band would have survived, actually, uh, had they not done this. I feel like this was this was the trial by fire and this was the kind of fight that they had. They had this is who they needed to get in the ring with to find out who they were. And, you know, they came out of all of this bloodied, but they... I'm curious though, because, so do you think, you think they were um, kind of brought together because they had this common enemy outside of themselves? Yes. I think initially that was the case. Um, I think that they, it helped unify them in a lot of ways. Um, I think that it kind of helped define the band that they wanted to be because they were, they were really fighting this, you know, going back as far as making the video for Jeremy and then never wanting to do another video for that again, refusing to do a video or release black as a single, um, the whole five against one mentality on verses. And then, you know, you had Bytology, which was just kind of a, a statement record, you know? And, uh, I, I feel like this was the album that, like I said, it just defined the band for themselves. Who are we? And everything that we know about this band from this, that, that point on uh, was born out of, out of that battle. Um, and a lot of the fans that aren't fans anymore, or a lot of the folks are like, Oh yeah, I used to listen to that. I love their first three yeah. albums. You know, this was kind of the breaking point, you know, there's a lot it, of fans like that, man. Yeah. I, I can't help but think that this whole, quagmire is what led to the kind of recording that no code became, you know, Uh, and and the whole concept of no code. Right. Uh, And again, it just, it turned a lot of fans off. It was a massive departure from who they, who they used to be in a similar way as uh, okay computer was for Radiohead. And I think that it, you know, you were in one camp or you were in another and it's a, you and I are obviously the type of fans that have grown with the band and, you know, we've always kind of followed them on whatever path they wanted to take, sometimes reluctantly, but <laughs> sometimes willingly and, and lovingly and excitedly. And this is just one of those moments where they really made a defining choice that I think saved their careers in a lot of ways, even though it, it ultimately knocked them off the pedestal of biggest rock band in America. You know, they... And- I'm going to exclude Dave from this because it it feels like he was separate from those other four. They've always been very principled. And even though they were fighting this fight, I mean, some, I I said that the 95 tour was shambolic, but that doesn't mean that there weren't amazing shows. I mean, think about Chicago as an example, but I mean, Mm -hmm. even San Jose, Salt Lake city, that they had some great, great shows, red rocks. You know, we, we had, you know, those six versions of no Jeremy come from that tour. But I remember in many different stops in that tour, when they played "Not for You," they would. Ex- he, I remember Eddie explaining at least at least one one occasion. You know, this people think that this when I talk about "Not for You" that it's about the fans. It's not about the fans. It's about you know these big guys who are trying to screw you over and all these executives. And it's not about. It's not for them. So when I say "Not for You," I don't mean you guys. Like he had to explain right. it. Um, he did. Which must have been hard when they went to the South Pacific. Wasn't that their like Taiwan shows? And, and <laughs> oh, <it's> like, <laughs> does anybody know Taiwanese? No. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I don't, I don't know if they would have not continued, but 
I know that they are very principled people and they've, they've, they've done, they've stayed principled all these years and they've done what they've wanted to do. And you're probably right that they became stronger as a group out of that. And I think no code was kind of a test to the fans um, at the end of the, of this road that they had this quagmire road, as you said, you know, what's, what's funny as a, as a, as a coda to this is, you know, the most recent tour, which has been postponed, they use Ticketmaster exclusively, including uh, 10 club member sales. Mm. So things come full circle, I guess. I, I guess they came to an accord, as it were. I mean, every every show you and I have seen recently, I think, was purchased through, yep. through Ticketmaster. So. All right, let's move on to our Lyric of the Week. And as was alluded to earlier in the show, the lyric of the week comes from Riot Act and the song Ghost. Okay, so, you know, I already talked a little bit about this particular song and, and how. I felt that the lyrics really seemed to hit on something profound for me. Uh, you know, you, you just listen to this. The TV, she talks to me, breaking news and building walls, selling me what I don't need, didn't know soap made you taller. Uh, first of all, personifying TV as a she, and, and just it's almost like it's, it's, uh, it's seducing you, you know? because it's either telling you what you want to hear or it's playing off of your insecurities and fears and telling you what you think you want to hear. And this news breaks, right? But all the breaking news is just about building walls between you and other people, uh, between you and the society that you think you belong to. Uh, And it just sells you what you don't need. Now, either that's, that's the news itself and that line could be interpreted as selling you ideas and dogma that you don't need, or even selling you just product, you know, capitalism at its worst that you don't need. Didn't know soap mage taller. Now this line for me, I think is one of the strongest ones on their catalog. And I know a lot of folks will be like, this guy, what is he smoking here, man? But if, 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 if you interpret it this way, I think it'll sit a little different. Okay. So we are in the midst of, of a pandemic right now. And I think that what you're seeing is a lot of soapboxes. You're seeing a lot of people mm. on all sides of the fence, whether you were in the, you know, a mask violates my constitutional right crowd, or you're in the, you know, people need to wear masks and, and quarantine is good and, and, and we shouldn't be reopening. And, and, you know, how could you possibly care about the economy when people's lives are at stake? There's so much of this like self-righteous purification going on. On, on all sides, quite frankly. And so it's this idea that like, didn't know soap made you taller. It's this idea that because you think you're cleansing yourself and what you believe is right, you think you're suddenly taller than everybody else. You think that you're suddenly, that your, your viewpoint is correct. And that anybody who counters that or sees it differently is wrong. And it always leads to conflict. It's, it has to be contentious. It can't just be like a civil conversation that examines all sides and then somehow finds pragmatism squarely in the middle, which is where it usually is found. And that line, obviously, comes from an album that happened in 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. So you're not really talking about the coronavirus pandemic. In this, in this lyric here, but it's a similar concept. You know what I mean? If, if you look at what was going on in, in the world at the time with Bush being president and all the wars that were being fought and, you know, people talking about, you know, we need to uh, rid the world of terrorism and it's about cleansing the world of this and that. And I still think it's the same principle that, you know, this, this concept of, of I'm using soap, meaning I'm using my ideas to cleanse what's right and what's wrong. And then, I'm suddenly taller because of it, as opposed to, you know, buy this, you know, uh, Irish spring soap and you'll be taller. I mean, I don't necessarily think the line has to be interpreted that way. So at least I I don't interpret it that way. So I feel like the, the, the song suddenly, it takes on new meaning 15 plus years after it was written, you know? And to me, that's the mark of a, of a great song in a lot of respects. And there's just a lot happening here about media biased and how to interpret what's being communicated to you 
when the TV is talking to you, are, are you going to use what you receive from the television, from media, wherever you're getting it from, to build walls? And I mean, how prophetic is that line, right? Build the mm-hmm. wall. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. So there's, it, it, I, I listen to that song now and it's just, it's amazing. Much like some of the anti-violence uh, and gun songs that Pearl Jam has had that continues to be relevant today. This is one here that kind of tackles the role of media in our society and it's just as relevant today as it was then. And it's just as poignant to me today as it was then. And, and I just think it's a really underrated lyric. And it's something that we should all probably think about a little bit more. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, this is such an interesting lyric to me because before hearing your explanation, and you know, as we discuss what we're going to, what lyrics we're going to choose and what songs we're going to do and what topics we're going to do, you know, we each kind of go to our own corners and, and laser in and, and think about what these things mean to us, right? Mm-hmm. And I had, I basically took your take from that specific set of lyrics and that it makes all the sense in the world to me. But then I, I listened to the song and I, t- and I took that chunk of lyrics and then I applied them to the rest of the song. Right. And it almost made me think of it in a completely different way on top of what you're already, what you just said, because I think it works in two different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, the song was written shortly after uh, Ed and Beth divorced. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about, well, what is Ed trying to say here? Because the rest of the song for me, could very easily be talking about how Ed is so hurt that he's numb to his own feelings, but he's extremely sensitive and irritable to the outside world. And so it's talking about him being in that state. And then the second verse is kind of like a different chapter to this story where, okay, what's on the TV? What the fuck is this shit? What, what are they selling me? And, and it's just kind of like in that context, it's more of, um, you know, TV being a she that maybe she is the one who's lying to me. She being mm-hmm. Beth. Cause we, we don't, we don't know why they divorced. Right. Um, and there's a lot of speculation and, and, and we've read that he was very heartbroken about it. So you would maybe assume that she was the breaker upper. So I was thinking about all this when I was reading these lyrics. And so, you know, lying to him, telling him all these great things, but it was all bullshit to cover herself. Maybe that's, you know, the, the first reason why he wrote those lyrics. And only later do I see what you mentioned and it has this double layer effect. It's hard for me to kind of see the bigger picture with what your interpretation was of these four lines. You know, mind is gray. I'm trying to get the here. Mind is gray. Like the, the city. city. Packing in and overgrown. Love is deep. Dig it out. Standing in a hole alone. Working for something that one can never hold. So it, it really felt more of an introspective um, song. More, more of an intimate, yeah. It felt more intimate and personal. So I was trying to figure out how these four lines applied to that, and so that's why I came, I came into this with the, um, with the not corporate America media influence thing. But the beauty of this song, as you just said, is that you can take this and you can apply it in a in a secondary manner, or at least I can, and it applies perfectly well to something now. Mm. It applied well then too in that context. So now I like the song even more because now I've right. got this, you know, original understanding of what he's trying to say throughout the entire song. And then I have this new interpretation that's totally applicable to now that you've just explained to me. And so now I'm buying it in two different ways. And it's like, holy shit, Ghost is really cool, really interesting, more 3D than I ever thought before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great song, man. And, you know, of course, Mike Solo. You can't go wrong with yeah. that. <laughs> Let's listen to Mike Solo in our live cut of the week. Ready to stand up! This particular cut here comes from July 11th, 2003. And if you're a diehard Pearl Jam fan, you already know what show that is, don't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be... Uh, the Mansfield Show. So, uh, Jason, why don't you tell our listeners why that show is so iconic in the Pearl Jam catalog? They had played two shows in Mansfield a week prior, and they added a third. And they decided that they were going to try and play 
pretty much everything they could think of that third night. And so they basically went out and did an acoustic set. And then the opening band came out and then they played their full set. So it's according to my bootleg. That's 82 originals and 12 covers, which was three (laughs) hours and 25 minutes. According to the bootleg, it's probably a little bit longer than that because they pulled out some of the crowd noise, you know, for the, from the encores. But can you imagine a song, a a show that long? I mean, I think state college was similar, but I don't think as many songs were played. So it was a magnificent event to be a part of. Mm-hmm. It, it really was. It's it, There are a handful of shows that I sometimes wish I had been in attendance for. And I think to myself, if I had been at that show, it'd be really hard to not say it was the greatest show I'd ever been to. This is one of them. Um, I think uh, I think it totaled out as like 47 songs. That basically... Uh, okay, so at, at 47 songs, both the number of songs and the length of this particular set list, this show. It, it is the longest Pearl Jam show ever played, and it did surpass uh, the previous longest, which was, as you mentioned, State College, which was from the exact same year, just a few months prior. So it's, it's an iconic show. It really, really is. And uh, they just brought it, man. I mean, you know, they, they came to play that night, and uh, they knocked this one out of the park, and I think it was one of those things where if you – were intrigued by ghost or uh if you if you thought it rocked it's the type of thing where when you heard it live at mansfield it crushed it's one of their finest performances of the song it sounds crisp it sounds great uh, you you add in the context of the show in which it it belongs it's a stellar stellar performance the uh the fans in the new england area are always for some reason, they're always just up for these shows. They're always packed full of fan club members. The it used to be called the Tweeter Center back in the day. Uh, that amphitheater in Mansfield is like halfway between um, Providence and Boston, out in the kind of the middle of nowhere sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So you got to drive out there. You know, it's not La, it's not Las Cruces out there, but it's out there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they uh, there's a reason why they added a third show. Yeah, you know. And so this version is probably going to knock my pants off. So let's listen to it. It's uh, July 11th, 2003 in uh, Mansfield, Massachusetts.
what else is there really to say? Um, it's a great version of a very underrated song, and it's from a classic show that some people, I don't know that they really understand that this show is a thing. Like at the time, learning that they played, they tried to play everything and had an acoustic set, a full acoustic set of like 12 songs and then a full show on top of that was mind-blowing. And sometimes I forget that that existed because it's been 17 years. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, you got the Garden Show, you got Red Rocks, you got Chicago, you got, you know, some Atlanta 94, you have all these epic shows. Sometimes I forget about Mansfield. Yep. Holy hell, what a show. Great show. And uh, just to go back to that lyric, you know, regardless of where you lie on a particular issue or what's happening right now to all of us in this very, very difficult and shared experience, just remember there's no need for the purity test because soap does not make you taller. (laughs) All right, guys, we will see you next week. And until then, you are listening to The State of Love and Trust. Love and Trust.